You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is CEO of Sonos, Patrick Spence. Patrick, good to have you. Good to be here, Bob. So how did COVID-19 affect Sonos? Well, wow. It, uh, it sent everybody home almost overnight. Uh, and if you would have asked me, you know, back before COVID, if we'd be able to run the company, uh, you know, from everybody working from home, uh, I probably would have had a hard time believing it, quite frankly. And it was incredible because our team, you know, just stepped up um, to really be able to keep the business going um, during that period. And in fact, we kind of threw out the playbook that we had um, and we got reoriented on a few key priorities. The first was supporting our people and making sure that they were set up for success and, you know, able to balance kind of the demands of life at that point. Um, and then we got really focused on bringing the joy of Sonos to more homes. So uh, we had a whole bunch of our retailers and distribution channels closed. Um, and so what we did was say, OK, like, how can we help people through this period and maybe make life at home a little bit better? Yeah. So getting focused really, um, you know, at that time on... Uh, Sonos at Home is what we called it. And we launched a campaign to help people, you know, if, for their home office and how Sonos could help make their home office a little better, make streaming at home a little better. Um, you know, and so so we were really trying to just, um, you know, play into kind of what was happening and play our role, right? And kind of get back to well, well, our well, mission well, and how we could help. Well, let's slow down a little bit. On a more granular level, tell me about the office use and helping people in offices. Well, so... You know, as everybody was going home, um, we felt like, you know, we could bring music into people's home offices. And so we, I think it was the, maybe the one at that point we were saying, hey, like think about putting a one in your home office to have some background music. And we gave some sound suggestions at that point, maybe some ASMR, um, you know, kind of background music that could help people kind of go through the day um, and navigate their day a little bit with some, um, you know, some 
mood music, uh, so it wasn't oh, quite okay. so stressful. Okay, so you are the manufacturer. How did you reach the people who have home offices? Well, you know, the good thing about Sonos is that we uh, have all of our customers' information from when they actually register their system. So we reached out to all of our existing customers, and then we actually, so with, with messages, basically, a tailored campaign that we created, you know, overnight uh, as a result of COVID, reaching out to them um, and saying, hey, you know, think about putting a Sonos One in your office um, and here's what you can listen to and some recommendations that we had. We reached our existing customers that way. And then we actually went out and promoted the story, if you will, Sonos at home, um, across all of the social media channels and um, all the digital channels out there that we largely use for a lot of our advertising efforts these days. Okay. Was there a discount for pre-existing users? There was, yeah. So we, so in that period, we gave some discounts um, to people. We created a bundle for streaming, for instance, during that period as well. So if people, we knew people would be watching more video. So if they wanted at that point to get uh, a play bar or a beam, um, we put that together with surround sound uh, system and offered a, a discount on that to people as well. Um, so we really pivoted to try and quickly get people. Um, you know, and meet their needs kind of where they were at that time and, and kind of the changes, the dramatic changes in the way that people were uh, spending their time at home. So how effective was that campaign? What kind of percentage result are you looking at? You know, like direct mail, 1% is what they target. So on a campaign like this to existing customers, uh, what kind of response do you get? Well, well above that. So in that quarter, Baba was the next one, you know, our um, direct-to-consumer sales were up 300% year over year. We had an absolutely incredible, you know, rise. Now, of course, we had other channels, physical channels closed uh, at that particular point in time, but we were able to kind of meet customers where they were. And at that point, we had all those retailers are closing, you know, the main um, levels of distribution at that point, 90% of our sales were going through, um, through, you know, people that weren't us, weren't our stores, weren't, weren't our online session, weren't, wasn't our online store and pre-pandemic. And so quickly we we're like, okay, wh what are we going to do? How, you know, and, and how do we survive this period? Right. Cause I think at that point, everybody thought, okay, we're going into recession. This is going to be a very difficult period. Are people going to spend money? What are they going to do? And um, so we, we went hard in terms of directly to, to the customers, both our existing and then new and sending them to Sonos.com. And we saw 300% year over year growth in that period. We clawed our way back to, I want to say, you know, just short of the year before results in that period. And then we actually built on that um, afterwards and, and our business really took off. Okay. The 300% reference is what? That was in, uh, I think that was our good, the quarter last year where the pandemic, um, you know, really first started. So that was probably our fiscal Q3 of last year. Um, is and when, when you're 300%. saying 300%, 300% relative to what? Just on To the year clarifying? prior. Yeah. To the year prior. Yeah. Okay. We're talking Mo by, by quarter? Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yep. Let's just go back. When there's not a pandemic, what percentage of equipment is sold direct by Sonos via third parties? Yeah. Uh, so direct was about 10% prior to the pandemic. And what is it now? Um, so through last year, um, we reported that it was about 23% of our total sales. Why do you think in a world that everybody's so comfortable buying on Amazon that most of your customers are buying through traditional retail channels. Um, 
you know, I think people, if they're going to buy a TV or buy something else, you know, I think that's a time where people um, will buy through the physical channels, right? Convenience. We've actually done some research to look at, but why did somebody who is already a Sonos customer purchase at Best Buy or Costco? And in some of those situations, they just wanted to get another product today. So there's kind of like the convenience and I want it right now. Um, I'm not even going to wait for, you know, overnight or two day shipping. But then for our, um, you know, for our home theater products, there's very much the match of I'm buying a TV. How am I going to make it sound great? Right. And that's where, okay, there's these products from Sonos, um, whether you're at Best Buy or Costco, that uh, make sense in terms of purchasing um, in tandem with the TV purchase. And so that's like a compelling, a pretty compelling Fact. And then the, the one thing to, that people underestimate is as well the uh, what we call our installed solutions channels, the dealers that install um, products in people's homes. And that's been an amazingly resilient channel. You know, it's almost it's been about nine years since I've been at Sonos. And when I first came in, I thought that would be one that would be decimated by a lot of the other channels that exist out there. But I think the um, th- those partners continue to show their value. Um, they continue to solve customer problems and they're a big part of our business as well. And they've been amazingly resilient through the pandemic too. And so that's a big chunk of the business. So we've, we've got a nice distribution across a variety of the, um, a variety of the channels. And I think one of the other things, Bob, is some people may want to hear it. You know, they may want to touch it, feel it, hear it. Um, cause I, because I would say we have a, you know, at this point, I'm pretty surprised by the percentage willing to purchase online, you know, sight unseen as well. We launched new products in the midst of the pandemic, uh, ARC, Five, Sub, recently, Rome. And, you know, so all of these products, people were purchasing sight unseen, sound unheard, um, which is pretty impressive and says a lot about the brand. Do you know if people who already own a Sonos product are disproportionately or much higher ordering online as opposed to new customers? Yes, we're we, we're able to tell if you're you know if you've registered your product to an existing system that you already have um, versus being a new what we call a new home um, and so into a new home and so as we see that we can look at okay how are people doing it and what we see is that existing customers are more likely to buy on Sonos.com they've developed a relationship with the brand um, you know and then they want to we announce a new product we make it really easy for them to order on Sonos.com. And so that's something that we see. Okay, let's go back to COVID. Could everybody do their job from home with a manufacturing-oriented business? Yeah, great question. And it's something that um, was challenging. We ended up having um, probably at the end dozens of people in each of our Santa Barbara and Boston locations that started to come back into the office after the first wave. So immediately what happened right at the start is everybody had to. Um, And so uh, you saw amazing like test rig setups in people's kitchens and bathrooms and basements um, in Boston. And some of the pictures were, it was just inspiring to see the way people were working to still launch a product, right? We were, we were in the midst of trying to launch beam five and sub and we weren't sure, okay, is are people even going to launch products in these times? And, and what's going to happen as we go through this? And the team just did everything they could to keep it on track and, you know, having this test equipment at home. And then we created the conditions in our Santa Barbara and Boston offices where people could be distanced, had PPE, um, so that they could actually come in and start to use some of the test equipment, do some of the things that they needed to do. And so the, the reality is there's a number of jobs that you want 
um, in building these products to be in the office uh, for testing for the manufacturing team in China um, and our partners there uh, and Malaysia. We had to, uh, you know, abide by the the local laws, and that was a bit of a challenge. But at the same time, the team, you know, made it work. Um, we'd usually have people from Boston and Santa Barbara uh, on the ground in China, uh, actually with those builds and those kind of things. But they did it via Zoom. Um, they did it via pictures and FaceTime and all the other tools that are out there. And so they, we just figured it out. But it was it was hard to navigate in the early days. Um, but the power of the human spirit in it and, you know, kind of the creativity and just like figuring it out, um, I think it's pretty incredible. And why are there two offices and what goes down in each respective office? Mm, we actually also have one in Seattle. Um, so we started, um, believe it or not, in, you know, two offices. So simultaneously in Santa Barbara. And Boston, and and the thinking was trying to get the right talent. Right, we we are in a very uh, complex kind of space in terms of marrying the worlds of hardware and software together, um, and we knew we probably couldn't do it um, and get all the talent we needed in one particular location. So we've actually started in two. <clears throat> we added Seattle to the mix about five years ago because we needed to add even more software talent. Uh, into the company. And that's about two thirds of our engineering team is on the software side. And so we actually have all three offices. And I think, Bob, this was a an advantage for us uh, as we went into the pandemic, because we've been working in a distributed fashion for years. Um, and so we already were using Zoom religiously. You know, we would have uh, calls often where uh, teams from all three offices are on Zoom together. Um, we were using Slack. We were using all the tools. We were on the leading edge of using a lot of the tools that some people only found for the first time when they were forced to work from home. So that transition, you know, that probably served us well um, in that transition. And there, you know, being forced to work from home is very different than working from home and choosing to work from home. But nonetheless, we had the tools, we had the experience to actually make that work. Um, so we kind of know how to how to handle those situations. So if software's in Seattle. What are the strengths in Boston and Santa Barbara? There, we have we have software in all three offices. We have not we have not created, you know, an office and said this is the only place this can be. We've said, you know, talent. We need to find talent, and you can be in Seattle, um, Boston, Santa Barbara. Uh, you know, we have uh, so so that's kind of the way that we've approached it. And so hardware, you find a lot of hardware people in Boston because of the legacy there of audio companies and um, you know just some amazing history uh, there. And then you'll find hardware and software people uh, here in Santa Barbara as well. So um, in all three, and now we, we've got a small office in San Francisco as well. Um, and so you'll find both hardware and software people there. Okay. You talked about this office-oriented, home-oriented plan when COVID hit. Did you have enough inventory? Um, we did not. Um, so, and, and as you've probably seen, supply chain has been a huge issue, uh, over the past few months. And so immediately, I think not just us, but everybody in the industry and not just consumer electronics, anyone who builds anything immediately went to freeze, you know, let's see what's going to happen here because are people going to spend money, you know, job losses, everything closing up. And so everybody froze for a moment. Um, we saw that great momentum in Sonos at home. So we started to kind of ramp things back up and turn it back up. Um, and so, you know, then we started to crank the engine again, but very quickly demand really started to, to move up. And we saw even more demand for our products and much more than we could actually, um, you know, build as well. And so we started, you know, seeing a ton of demand that we couldn't fulfill, you know, really as we got into, 
the the you know the September October period um, of last year, and we've been trying to you know really catch up, if you will, uh, ever since. And so that's been a that's been an interesting learning, you know, for me and thinking through the. Uh, I think we'd all kind of been thinking, all right, we know what will happen in a situation like this, and there's pro- it was probably time for a recession and some of those things. Yet the injection of all the money into the system, um, the ability for many people in our target audience to continue to work from home, continue to have their job, you know, save money on entertainment, travel, all of those things actually ended up um, benefiting us in in a way. And so um, we did not, you know, predict that. And uh, I think it's a good lesson in, you know, really being mindful that you probably don't know what's going to happen in those situations, pretty unprecedented, and just having to stay agile. Um, if you will, through that. So that's been, uh, yeah, that's been one of those things that we've learned through this. And have you been affected by the chip shortage? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's been something that our team's done a better job than most, you know, in in managing, but certainly it's something that impacts us, impacts us um, today, as well as we've navigated through um, all of this and uh, the container shortage, you know, the ports um, have had situations where the staff there, um, as well caught COVID, right? And so we've had all of these factors. I've never seen a year like this, Bob. As I think back, I've been in, you know, uh, smart hardware plus software kind of for 23 years now, and I've never seen a supply chain situation like this and as many things kind of backing up as they have. And that's why uh, I'm so proud of our team and the way they've managed it because we've been able to continue to grow and deliver as much as we can to customers but certainly we've been, you know, we've still seen more demand um, than we have supply for. And we still have work to do in making sure that we're able to fulfill all of the customer demand out there. Do you believe after this crisis is over, the just-in-time philosophy of worldwide manufacturing supply chain, chain will change? Or will people just forget about this and we'll go back to the other one? I, I think it'll change based on what I'm seeing right now in the industry um, you know, and, and so I do think there'll be more thought. We've we've been more thoughtful in terms of okay, how are you building more resilience into the system? Um, there are some high hurdles to get over in terms of the capital outlays required to build the kind of um, facilities and suppliers that we would need in the United States, for instance, or let's say North America more generally. But I, you know, I think even the government um, seems interested in this area. Um, the largest companies that are in these areas are working on it. Um, we're having lots of conversations with our partners. So I do think um, we have a window of time uh, where we'll see if we can get enough momentum behind the movement of having more localized uh, supply chains, if you will. And it'll probably be some you know, combination in between because not everything um, from an affordability perspective, we'll make it work. But I, I do think there are some things. And I do think for products like ours, um, I think Apple's probably in this boat too. Like they, there's there's probably a way to, you know, make it work um, over time. And so that's something that we're certainly investigating and trying to come at from a variety of angles. And th- there's a lot of people in the industry working on the same thing. So I'm kind of optimistic um, that we'll get a little bit more, you know, back um, more locally. And I think that'll benefit everybody uh, from a resilience, resiliency perspective. And hopefully, you know, quite frankly, from a overall society and economy perspective as well. So what is the manufacturing design process and how long does it take? Who comes up with the products? You know, tell me from beginning to end. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, we're always thinking and working on customer insights. So trying to understand, which is a fancy term for behavior around customers and what's happening there and kind of what's happening in the industry. And we're trying to marry two things together. So we have a team looking at how customers are using products. And then we have a team looking at technologies and how, how do those things potentially come together? And so we're always considering where's that going? And, and really, we spend time thinking about the next five years as we're thinking about what we want to build. And so we'll be looking at a variety of, you know, opportunities out there as we think about where does the speaker go from here? Where does the soundbar go from here? Where does sound go from here? Um, you may have seen that recently we launched a, a picture frame that's a speaker with Ikea, for instance. And so we're always thinking about what can we do with, you know, different form factors and our software to create sound in different and new kind of ways. And so we'll go through and we'll do some work on that. We'll try to think about what it is that we think will fit the market at the right time. We work through um, things like the, all of the, the design and we start to get an idea on the design. We start to get an idea on, and we have a design team that works on that and is looking at materials and finishes and everything that's out there and kind of what's happening in the world and what fits our design language. And then we'll be looking at that technolo advanced technology team and what can we be incorporating in it? Is it voice? Is it ultra wideband? Is it Bluetooth? Like what, what should be in the product? And it's what should be in the product in the interest of the customer experience, right? And what behaviors we want to, we want to deliver, if you will, um, as we're going through that. And so, so, so then we'll start working on what we call a product requirements document, which says, here's the thing we're going to build. And we'll have an initial take on, a concept with some um, initial uh, IDs, some designs in terms of what's there, um, an idea of kind of where it'll fit in the market and what we think it can do. Um, and we'll start to put that together. And usually, you know, it'll be to market then, um, yeah, in this day and age, which is forever in the, in the era of like software moving um, quickly and shipping, you know, every day that that's usually an 18 to 36 month process, depending on what we're building. And so we are, we are working very hard in those situations to determine what's going to be popular, what's going to resonate with customers, you know, year and a half, three years, you know, from now in some cases, which is a, is a high wire act, right? Because that's a long time away in this day and age in terms of determining, okay, what is it? What's it going to look like? Um, what's going to fit with people's home decor? Uh, how is it going to sound at that particular point in time? Um, what formats are going to be out there at that time? Um, and, and all of those things. And so it's really like a process um, that takes a lot up front. And then there's a lot of work, but work that we know now after almost 20 years at this, we know how to go execute on from there. Um, and so it becomes very clear from the product requirements document, okay, here's what we need to do. And then it's a matter of like managing it um, from that and making sure that we can actually deliver on the vision that we set for the product at the beginning. And we're always doing stage gates and checks and saying, okay, is this living up to the promise of the product that we had envisioned, um, back in the, you know, the first day. And so it's really a cross-functional team, Bob. This is why I think we've been successful in what we've done. So design, sound, um, technology, you got marketing in there, product management, um, all working together to try and create something great. Um, shepherded by, you know, a product manager at the end of the day that's going to take the ultimate uh, responsibility for uh, this product and uh, delivering it to customers. Let's just say I snapped my fingers today and there was a big revolution in this sphere and you had an idea today, lock, stock and barrel. If you had the idea, how fast could you get it out on the street? 
Depend depends exactly what it would be. You know, like there's some things that can be done through software. So we've gone back and we've increased the functionality of our products through software at times. Um, and that can be a six month uh, venture. That can be a 12 month venture, depending on what we're doing. If it's a new hardware kind of idea, let's say design concept, if it's something that is known, quite known, you might be out in 18 months. But if it's something revolutionary that's going to take new technology, and even though you know the use case that you want to create um, and what kind of experience you want to deliver for customers, if it's taking um, invention right, and creating new technologies or implementing them in different ways that, um, that have never been done before, that could take you know 36 months um, in terms of doing that. So it just depends on like how much you're trying to accomplish in the product that you're doing. Cause, and we have both, right? We'll have revolutionary products we're bringing out, like Arc, which is completely different. And then we'll do things at times like bring out the One SL, which was the one without a microphone. And so in a situation like that, that'll only take us 12 months because we just need to pull the microphone out and we need to make sure that it all works and we can do that much more quickly. Now, legendarily, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1998, he thinned the product line. He wanted to make it, very obvious, not confusing to the customer. You know, there's thoughts, and I've been in retail a long time ago. If you show somebody two products, they'll buy one. You show them five, sometimes they're overwhelmed, they'll leave the store. Needless to say, that is not the philosophy of Apple today, but it's Sonos. You have varying niches. Do you ever think, well, God, are we putting out too much? We should limit the product line. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, and, and you know, having come from you know, and growing up inside a, a mobile phone company, um, BlackBerry, you know, really inventing the smartphone. I think there was, there's a different mentality, you know, there. And one of the things that I think we've been good at, and one of the things that I, I actually mandated um, was around two, at least two new products per year. I felt like that was the right cadence. So this is full, purely like an instinctual call. But I felt like given the capability of the organization at the time and then the opportunities in front of us and creating things, that was the right thing to do. And you'll notice we don't, this is very different than most in consumer electronics. We don't have a TikTok where like every year we refresh our entire product line. That is a classic thing to do from a lot of the tech companies that are out there. And they'll come up with the new version of product X, Y, or Z. They'll do it every year or every couple of years. We instead focus on building you know, a few great products. And you will see some that we do um, where we'll do a refresh like we did with five, which is a build on the play five um, and the sub last year, a build on the the original sub. Right. And so those um, are things that we'll do, but we'll do those on a five to seven year cadence. And then we'll bring something completely new out like an arc or um, a beam when it came out or a Rome, for instance. And so those products, um, you know, we, we also will bring in the mix. But I think, Bob, the right thing for us and the capabilities we have, the customers we're selling to, thinking about sustainability, thinking about building products that last for a while and something you don't have to upgrade every year. Um, you know, I like the cadence of two per year. It gives us the right balance of being able to tell our story again. So there's two times a year you'll see us be pretty loud in media and then as well with our advertising, which is when we're telling the story around um, our new product, but it's all part of the system, right? And so Sonos is usually um, told in a broader way at that time. Um, and it's, I think our approach is quite unique compared to um, any other hardware company I could think of. Okay, let's talk about home audio. I want your take on the state of home audio, just going through a little history. If you go back 40 odd years ago, it was really about everyone getting a large home stereo to get closer to the sound. 
Then we went to the boom box. Then we went to the earbud. Needless to say, that's not a market you're in. You're in the home audio sphere. What is going on there? You know, I, I think people, it's been interesting. One of the things that that we've seen through this period is I, I think, so I'll go back right to the beginning. And at the beginning, I think really one of the biggest things with Sonos was making it easy for people to listen to audio in their home and, and digital formats, right? So at that point, downloads, you know, eventually would get to streaming. And we kind of democratized that to some degree because it was a it was a much more difficult for people to be really enjoying good home audio in the early days. And so we tried to make that easier than it was. Uh, and I think that was the magic through the first phase. Interestingly, you know, as the big tech companies jumped into the space, um, then there were these pucks, these, you know, the small products, 29 bucks or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, those were being given away for free when you subscribe to the New York Times, for instance, or all these other things, or there, you know, there's cheap Bluetooth products. And I think it brought sound into the home in a different way. And what we tried to do was tell our story on top of that. So if people got a taste of, you know, the the Google products or the Amazon products at those those cheap levels, we wanted to show them that there's something better there and something more premium uh, for the longer term. And, and I feel like we've been successful at that. If you look at our growth um, kind of over the period that those companies have entered the space. And, and I feel good about the fact that we're doing that because we're bringing a better experience. We're bringing an open experience, right? Supports all of the different services out there. So you're not trapped in one ecosystem. Um, and we're bringing better sounding audio um, as the way the artist intended it into people's homes in that way. And we're still making it easy versus kind of the traditional audio solutions that were much more niche for people and had to, you know, take a bit of a degree to figure out how to use. And so I feel like we're at a point where people are, you know, being thoughtful about the products that they're putting in their home. Um, They're thinking about the longevity, the premiumness, the openness. um, And I think all of that has benefited us. Now, I would say the thing we push on is, okay, what, you know, what's the future hold as we think about um, as we think about audio in the home. And one of these things that we've been pushing with Ikea um, and as well with our true play technology, you know, that really um, shapes sound in the room is, um, you know, do we need to be constrained by the speaker form factor? Um, So this picture frame, for instance, um, making sound is a great example or the lamp that we've done um, with Ikea in terms of making the sound because I'm not sure that the future is necessarily dedicated products in the way that they are today, the sound can be integrated into other household products. And certainly there'll be people that, that want audio um, in such quality and fidelity, they want a dedicated product. But I think for a lot of people, if you can find a way to bring um, great audio into the home and do it in some of the form factors or make it disappear to some degree, um, I think that's going to be even more compelling to millions more people. Okay, let's talk specifically about quality audio. So, there's nowhere near the press nor the consumption of this stuff, but there are tweaks who will spend $100,000 on their stereo, no problem. Uh, There's magazines dedicated to that niche. There's not a mainstream audio magazine anymore. There's sound and video, which is an amalgamation of previous things. So, how much will people pay for good sound? And where does Sonos fit in this? We've tried to democratize it as much as possible. So we've tried to say, hey, can we bring, let's say, you know, uh, probably with ARC, 
uh, our soundbar at $800, for instance, uh, you know, it, are we hitting the point where it, most people would have to pay or people in the industry would expect to pay $1,500, right? Like we're trying to bring it into, um, you know, a lower price point to some degree, but we're still building premium products. And so we want that great sound, kind of want to have it all. We want that great sound, but we want to democratize it um, a little bit. There's no doubt, Bob, you can still, you know, go out and spend tens of thousands of dollars, right, on creating like an epic home sound system. You could do the Dolby Atmos in ceiling, you know, 7.1.4 um, in terms of like a full setup if you wanted and create just an incredible experience. But that's not where we play. We play very much at how are we helping what we call culture seekers, like really fill their homes with music, do it in an easy way, but not compromise on audio. And certainly, I mean, you, you know, you're getting um, what you pay for, but we want to make sure that it's surprising sound at whatever price point that we're at. So that when people hear a one, a five, an arc, they're like, wow, that sounds great for that price. Your, f- your top of the line, really music product is the five, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And the present retail price of that is? Uh, $499. $499. Who are your competitors in that sphere, if anybody? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is Google took a run at that space with the uh, Home Max uh, a couple of years ago, but they discontinued that. Uh, Apple took a run at it with HomePod, and um, they recently discontinued that. Um, it, there's there's not a lot of people playing in that space. Bose has a couple products in that space, um, but, you know, Five dominates uh, really in that space. And I'd say the other interesting thing, Bob, on that is we've also seen over time you know, where five would have been maybe the speaker in the living room. I think what we've done with Arc and Beam, our soundbars, have actually kind of changed that a little bit where maybe instead what you're going to do is have an Arc or have a play bar that or a, a Beam now um, under your TV. And now, because you can use that as your Sonos speaker, do you really need to add another speaker into the room? Um, is it interesting question? And so I do think we're seeing a little bit of that and that convergence um, to some degree, because why not play uh, your music on a beam or arc? It sounds fantastic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves 
to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Your product mix, how does it break down in terms of sales? How much is television? How much is audio, et cetera? Yeah, we, we don't break it out. I mean, it's pretty even um, across the board. But, um, you know, we also don't forget like amp and port as well. And, and those are those products um, which power in ceiling and wall speakers, um, other uh, company speakers as well, uh, home theater systems. And so uh, we've got a really good mix across, uh, you know, really our three, now four with portables product lines and um you know so and and it's it's for us it's about the system right and people you know people have a mix and match of all of those different products as well and that's kind of what we're always thinking about is how do we help customers with what they need next as they think about sound in the home and that's why we got into home theater it's why we got into portables after uh, as well as because people saw that need uh and so we're always thinking about okay what other you know categories do we want to get into okay in terms of the traditional audio companies, is that really a completely different vertical at 500 and it's a completely different customer or is there competition? What's going on there? You know, I really think for traditional audio companies, many have tried to bring out Sonos killers over the years. And I think the biggest miss at the end of the day is on the software side. And we started, uh, you know, with a team in software and hardware. Um, I've often said that, um, you know, borrowing Mark Andreessen's term, I, I think I see Sonos as software eats audio um, because it is the difference. It is where we're born from and we've married the two. And I just don't, I haven't seen any traditional audio company, you know, really get serious about the software investment to create the kind of experience that we do at Sonos. And so that's why I think uh, we could, we're the leader in home audio um, and why we've been so successful. Now, does someone go into a store and say, hmm, there's a Kef speaker, here's the uh, Sonos speaker I'm comparing, or is it really two different customers? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, I think there are some people that would be looking for a speaker, um, if you will, in those situations. And that's where uh, maybe they're getting help from a blue shirt at Best Buy and kind of navigating through the, the different trade-offs, if you will. But I also think that there are people that are going to look, let's say, like above, you know, $1,000 and above that are very serious into audio um, that, you know, maybe would use amp or port to power uh, the products that they purchase. But they'll be looking at speakers from um, other companies, you know, potentially there. But I, you know, that that's not a huge market from what we see today. What percentage of the marketplace do you have in television, beams and subs? Um, we're the leader in the, you know, that we, we play primarily in uh, seven countries today, you know, so in Western Europe and then uh, North America plus Australia. Um, and we're the leader by dollar share. 
So when you add up the dollars of Arc and you know Beam uh, together, we're the leader. Um, we take the revenue, the, the leadership position and revenue share. Um, but overall, I haven't looked at it on the category recently. Overall, in home audio, we are about nine percent of the annual spend in premium audio today. And who else is in that neighborhood? Uh, you know, Bose would be you know there. Um, JBL a bit because there's some Bluetooth in there. Um, uh, Samsung with some of their uh, soundbars that they sell with TVs. Uh, Panasonic a little bit over in Asia and Europe. And then it kind of goes into Europe a little bit. So there's really no one dominant player. No. Explain to my audience why the technology for Sonos is superior to competitors. Mm. It, it gets back to the software that we've built. So we, from the beginning, connected the system to the cloud. Um, so there's really a few different layers. So there's the connection of the cloud where we we connect you to all the services that are out there, um, whichever music services that you want to use. Um, we also you know, created, obviously, the app um, that allows you to control that. And then we created all the software that runs on the products that ties into your Wi-Fi network. And it's the marriage of all of those things. And we took a very complicated situation, which you could have put together yourself. Like you could do certain things and bring certain elements together by buying a certain set of speakers, setting up Wi-Fi router in a certain way, um, trying to tie into different services or maybe using proprietary protocols. But we really sweat the details to bring it all together and just make it easy, Bob, so that when you set it up, you can be easily listening to whatever streaming music it is or your music library and that that is fundamentally different than the way anybody else has really approached the space. And then there's been a number of companies that have come in, seen what we've done, started to copy what we do, um, obviously. And in some of those cases, we've had to um, enforce the fact that they've copied what we've done. But that is the key at the end of the day is, is sweating the details of creating that experience and the system so that you can add these products on um, over time and just make it really easy for customers. So there's a lot of complexity under the covers that we try to abstract from the customer. And that's the secret to success, actually, in any part of the consumer electronics, I would say. Bluetooth was a technology that had a long ramp before it was adopted by the public. And now things have really moved in that direction. A lot of people have no idea that Bluetooth is inherently, at the present standard, inherently not great audio. So in your particular case, Originally, Sonos created its own separate wireless network in the home. A, how does it do it now, still the same way? And can anybody else equal the sound? There's no equal when it comes to combining the uh, wireless, the way that we've created SonosNet, the wireless network that you talked about, which you still get if you use our boost product. So you can still create Sonos net in your home and some homes, bigger homes actually require that. There's also, um, you know, straight IP. So if you plug one speaker in, you don't have those products, you can actually run on the Wi-Fi network today. We still do the work to make sure that that, um, is reliable and the quality, the quality of the sound coming out of the speaker is obviously is related to the Wi-Fi network and everything in that. So we, we work to make sure that's a really good, um, and reliable connection. And I think you'll find that even though we're not perfect, the reliability um, and the consistency of the wireless connection delivers an ongoing quality experience that still um, leads the way. You know, um, 
versus anybody else out there today. Okay. When you first introduce your products, certainly the play products, eh, you know, they were moderately priced. But when Sonos entered the TV sphere, these were premium products. A sub at essentially $800, you know, a sound bar in the same price. You know, Yamaha, there are some companies that still manufacture something in excess of $1,000 for yep. either part of that component. But all day long, most people know a flat screen today comes with inferior speakers. So everyone buys a sound bar. Based on my casual observation, an incredible number of people are buying something in the $150 to $200 range. Okay, are you leaving money on the table or, and just apply, you know, appealing to a premium customer? Would Sonos ever make a less expensive product? You know, I think the, um, you know, if you look at what we've done on the speaker side, right, we've, and we came in with Play 5 back in the day. We started at the, it was actually 400 when it first came out price point, you know, and then we brought out a three and a one. Uh, we started with play bar in home theater. When we came out, we've replaced that with arc because Dolby Atmos and a number of other things felt, we felt really compelled to create the, the top end experience there, but we did bring out a more moderate product in beam. Um, so I, I certainly think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, we're always watching and trying to figure out, okay, what's the right thing to do and where's the right balance in this. I feel like we get a lot of people that we're looking at, you know, 200, $250, $250 products to step up a little bit to beam, um, being at three ninety nine right now. And so, um, it's something we're always looking at, Bob is like, where, you know, where does the, the price experience, you know, fit and where's the market, um, in terms of what's there. And so, um, stay tuned in terms of the, you know, the next products you'll see from us. Okay. Let's talk about you originally. You grew up in Canada where? Uh, I was born in Waterloo. Okay. Outside of Toronto. Yep. And what was your experience growing up? Were you a tech nerd? Were you into electronics? I was. So, uh, in second grade, second grade, third grade, it was second or third grade. Uh, my elementary school was fortunate enough to, uh, get a Commodore pet computer. Uh, and I was lucky enough, I think because my math grades were good at, there was some qualifying thing. There were four of us that got to actually use it and created, uh, a math program was my first, uh, programming assignment. And then uh, I distinctly remember as well creating a rocket, shooting rocket that would go up the screen uh, back with the displays that were just green and off green. Uh, and I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And so I was uh, smitten by that. Um, you know, I grew up in a, uh, a home where making the purchase for a of a computer was a big, big deal. But my parents did it when I was in the fifth or sixth grade, uh, ran my own bulletin board system. Um, as well back in the days with the slow modems, did a hockey, like a basically a fantasy hockey uh, setup before it became a thing. Um, and it was a bit of a nightmare. I had to go input scores like from the paper into that and keep a scoreboard. And it was ended up being a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, but um, was, I guess, on the early edges of um, what was the precursor to the, uh, the internet. Um, and so that was pretty formative for me. Um, I'd say there's two formative things uh, that I often look at. One was the technology, and I was very interested in computers and tech and where all of that was going. And then the other thing for me was team sports. So I played every team sport there was uh, growing up. And just I, I feel today that's like a, a huge part of what I put into practice uh, every single day at work is uh, everything I learned from team sports and personalities and how to manage different personalities 
um, to try and, you know, get us to uh, a victory, if you will, or just get people to work together. Um, so I think those are the two kind of most formative things uh, in my life. Okay. And what is your college experience? I uh, went to a college I'm sure you've never heard of called Western in London, Ontario, uh, and I took business there. Okay. So you graduate from college. What's your first job? Yeah. So um, I'd done an internship. I needed the money to finish my last year at uh, university. So I did an internship at uh, IBM in Toronto, worked uh, on the ThinkPad. So the very first laptop uh, team that was there, and it was incredible, had an incredible experience. Thought I would probably go back um, to IBM and work there for five years and then start my own company. Uh, but I saw an opportunity with this company called RIM um, back in Waterloo, uh, where I was born. And they had, this, they had this idea of this mobile product, a pager kind of thing at that point. And, and I saw connecting to wireless networks. And I thought, huh, like I've really seen with the laptop, the future of mobile computing. And we'd started to put wireless, uh, we started to put wireless modems into the laptops. And I thought, this is the future. This is going to be huge, big part of it. But this idea that this company uh, in Waterloo of, at that point, 150 people had, uh, I thought was really interesting. And it was massive. So this product at this, this time was this huge, called the hamburger uh, product. And you flipped it up and you saw like two lines um, basically at that point of the screen and it had these bubble keyboard keypads. You still tried to hold it like this, but it was uh, something else. And I thought, huh, this is pretty interesting because I've seen that mobile computing angle. This is wireless coming into it. Um, and so uh, this is interesting. And I went and met uh, Mike and Jim, the two co-CEOs uh, down there. And I was like, wow, this is uh, something, something special is happening here. I just got that feeling. Um, I think my mom thought I was crazy. All of my classmates thought I was crazy. Most of them were going off to, you know, big established companies, to investment banks, to those kind of things. Um, and my dad, who worked at the, uh, the hydroelectric company in the province we were in, Ontario, for 31 years, um, he was my biggest supporter in saying, go for it. Like, you know, this may not work out or, or whatever the case is there. You've got this gut feel on this company and the people there. And I was really... Um, just felt like I wanted to be part of it. Um, and so I jumped to join this company called RIM um, that nobody had heard of. And uh, we brought out, so it was after, it was about a year after I joined. Okay, what year, what year was that? I joined 98. And oh, so- Really early? Yeah, really early. 150 people. And you, do you get stock? Yes, I did. Did you ride it up and ride it down? No, no. <laughs> well, so I, I wrote it. My friend told a very funny story at our wedding, you know, when our stock was up to, you know, we went public at five, when our stock was up to about 15, um, you know, he called me and I was like, ah, it's getting kind of high, you know, in terms of where it, it ended up running up Bob to like 180, $200 in terms of where it was. Um, but, you know, like, so I, I, I did, you know, again, better than I ever expected. Um, I feel very fortunate in terms of what's there, but I certainly didn't get out on top. Uh, that's for sure. So you live and learn through that stuff. Did you make enough money at RIM that theoretically you wouldn't need a job again? No, 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 okay. no. I wasn't that fortunate. I okay, wasn't that so fortunate. No. Go back to 98 and what you're doing there. So when I joined, um, I was our first uh, product manager. Um, there were a couple of people that they had brought in um, at a senior level, VP level. And uh, I was starting to sell the precursor to BlackBerry, pitching it, trying to get the story down with uh, the precursor to 
it, what's AT&T Wireless today. Um, it was Bell South Wireless Data at the time. This is a, this is a long time ago now, as I tell it. Um, and tried it to, we were really trying, they had, this will show you the difference, right? So what we started to believe at RIM was we needed to tie it to email systems and specifically to Microsoft's email system because it was, you know, that was the future and there's going to be a lot more email users. Um, Bell South, precursor to AT&T, at that point was like, no, paging is the future. And it's all about paging. And you get us, uh, you know, we need to be able to do, uh, they had this feature, which was text to voice, for instance. And so it would call you and it would sound like Freddy Krueger was calling you. It was just like, there was some, it was fun, but it was, it was not, you know, something that you could see really taking off. And so they wanted to go down that path. They gave us a big contract to do that. I helped them in terms of trying to market and sell um, and understand the products and train up their sales team. And then, but in the background, you know, we were doing our own thing. And so we made it, we, we took a huge chance for a startup in purchasing airtime from Bell South in the United States and Rogers in Canada so that we could put together a package and say for, at that point, $39 a month, you can get the hardware and the service that allows you to connect to your work email, right? And receive it on this product. Um, and so that was like, that was the bet. And that was the BlackBerry, which came out like a year after I had started. And what I started doing, Bob, during that period, as I it, it was, I was just out, it was crazy. Like I was so young, um, didn't know what I was doing at all, but they gave me the chance to start working with um, the banks and brokerages uh, in New York City in particular, I kind of got in there with um, some of the, the uh, people that we were selling with. And I started to seed all of the senior people there with Blackberries. So I gave them some seeding, give, giving them basically Blackberries to start using. And I would give one to, uh, you know, like a influential executive, but I'd also give one to their administrator, their secretary, if you will. And so they could communicate back and forth and they absolutely loved it. And then the secretaries would say, oh, you need to get, you know, you need to give this one one and you need to give this one one. And like, and all of a sudden we created this groundswell at all the banks and brokerages in New York City of having to have a BlackBerry. And uh, it was absolutely incredible to see the kind of viral nature um, of that as well. And so uh, it was incredible. I did our first um, big corporate deal. So our first big one was with uh, Merrill Lynch. Uh, for, and it was for a thousand Blackberries, which now sounds like so small in the grand scheme of things, but it was so massive for us as a company. Um, our stock price went up like 20% on the day we announced that deal, even though, I mean, financial materiality, it wasn't that material. Um, but it was such an exciting time uh, in terms of, you know, just watching the technology really take off and people being so excited to use it, people being so passionate about it. Um, I just feel so fortunate to, you know, have, played a, a, a role in two different, you know, technology companies that um, have built products that people actually absolutely loved and, you know, use religiously and have raved about. Well, needless to say, there was an evolution at BlackBerry. And <laughs> seemingly from the street, it appeared that the Palm Trio was ahead mm. of BlackBerry with a phone. How did we ultimately get a phone in our Blackberries? Yeah, I think the uh, technology started to evolve in that way and it made sense. And the wireless network. So it was the next generation of wireless networks, Bob, that was super important to that, right? We were riding on a data-only network early on. Uh, and then as we got to the 2.5G networks, um, we were able to actually put voice into there. And it, at that point, it was just another app that you could put in there, another radio. 
uh, became pretty easy to do that. Um, and I think people miss the fact that we integrated it all very well. We tied into the back end of people's Microsoft Exchange or uh, I think at that point Lotus Notes in terms of the email services they were using. Companies like Palm and other companies, they, they didn't do the software work often on the back end to tie into those systems and think about the encryption and do all of that. And so in a way, it's not dissimilar to Sonos where you would find that you know, here at Sonos, you look at some of those traditional audio companies, they don't have the software that ties it into what's important today to customers. Some of those hardware companies that were there earlier than us, like a Palm, for instance, didn't do the work and didn't have the expertise to tie it into what mattered to users at that particular point in time. Um, and so, you know, we were able to um, outmaneuver them. We were able, look, we were told we could never be successful. And I think this is part particularly of, you know, being small town in Canada as well. Uh, people thought we were crazy that we were going to take on, you know, Motorola and Glenair and these other paging companies in the early days. And then as we started to incorporate phone, they said, there's no way you could take on Motorola, Nokia, Sony Ericsson, some of those companies at that point. Um, but we did. And, you know, uh, obviously became very successful. What was the feeling inside the building when the iPhone launched, 2007? Yeah. So there was, um, I, think there, I think the public, and you, you, there's a great book that uh, I contributed to called Losing the Signal uh, by um, Sean Silkoff and Jackie McNish that goes through, you know, all of this and, and I think is probably the best, you know, history of BlackBerry lesson, if you will. But there was a perception that we you know, we were arrogant about it or not concerned about it, but we absolutely were. So we saw it for what it was in terms of a threat and some of those things and saw the innovation that was there. Um, yeah, well, I think it's fair to say that we were all Apple fans. and Many of us were Apple users as well, you know, at that point in terms of looking at it. Um, they, you know, we, one of the, mis one of the biggest mistakes and one of the things I try to counsel others on and even, you know, I think we've put into action here was one of the steps that we took, which was Verizon came to us. You'll recall the, or the first iPhone um, was an AT&T exclusive and AT&T and Apple had worked on that. So Verizon came to us and said, hey, we need a response. And, you know, like, let's do something together to do that. And, you know, they waved a big check in terms of building a product called the Storm. And, uh, you know, we went and we created our first touch screen product. We didn't build on our strengths. Instead, we were responding to what Apple had done. And we brought out the storm and pretty much overnight when we brought that product out, um, we threw away, you know, uh, at that point, 12 years of hard work in building the brand and reliability and people could count on their BlackBerry um, as a response, you know, and, and, you know, in the interests of, um, you know, really trying, I, I would say at that point, the financials, right. And the money that was there. So to me, that wasn't the right response. Um, it would have been like us responding at Sonos to Google and Amazon launching $29 pucks by launching our own $29 puck. That's not what we do. That's not where our strengths lie. Um, but that's what we did. And that was a, you know, that was a, that was to me, one of those things that sent us down the wrong path at uh, RIM. But we were concerned about the iPhone, um, impressed by, you know, what they've been able to, um, you know, to pull off. Um, you, you may recall that two is about two to three years post iPhone, BlackBerry continued to grow like crazy, right? And so there was also through there some period, I would say, of, from some people of denial and of like, oh, the touchscreen will never catch on, right? So there was some of that in the organization, but I think much more was like, no, no, the touchscreen, this makes sense and it'll happen over time. Um, but we, uh, we obviously um, you know, didn't make our pivot in the way we needed to um, and... 
um, the rest is history. One of the two owners or the two uh, founders of your company went on and said, well, Blackberries had a very thin data profile and they dismissed the iPhone saying, you know, they're going to hog so much data it will never play out. Now, factually that happened, but ultimately shifted people to Wi-Fi and then uh, networks became more robust. Was there, you know, any wake up during that transition period? Not, not really. That that was one thing. So you hit on it, and that was Mike uh, Lazaridis, who is the father of BlackBerry. And y- you know, one of the things that Mike was so good at was understanding physics and understanding the fact that really in the early days, that airtime we bought from Bell South and Rogers, nobody was using that for anything. They didn't think it could be used for anything. So we got it cheap, um, and but it was nationwide. And Mike had realized, hey, we could actually do an email service over this narrowband wireless network. And so, you know, that that was a strength in that situation. But then when it came to 3G and saying, hey, there's going to be video, there's going to be radio streaming, all of the things that we're seeing today, you know, I mean, we're now 5G, um, you know, Mike almost couldn't get it, you know, couldn't get there in terms of this is going to work from a physics perspective and what it would mean to battery life and a bunch of the trade-offs that people would have. And the displays and those kind of things. And so we spent time trying to convince, or Mike did in particular, trying to convince um, an AT&T, for instance, like that that 3G wasn't the future. And instead, we should focus on 2.5G and like, here's why. And the, laid out the physics case, which after the CEO of AT&T has spent $20 billion on Spectrum, doesn't really want to hear because they <laughs> need to make that work. They've, they've just bet their career on making 3G work. What they want to hear is, here's the 3G phone, you know, you can sell on your network. And so even though, you know, Mike had like great physics argument, the business reality of what AT&T needed at that time was completely different. And so, um, so we missed it. How long did you ride the wave at BlackBerry? When were you done? Um, so how long did I, it was 14 years I wrote it. And I mean, you know, if you would have cut me, I would have bled BlackBerry. Um, I started our business in Asia Pacific. Um, so I started our offices there and through those countries and, built the team there, came back, I, I led our uh, our relationships with all the carriers and our sales teams in North America, and then eventually going went over to Europe, Middle East, Africa, ran that out of England, and then I ran our global sales and marketing team. And so, I mean, I was, I was in, um, you know, and I grew up with Jim and Mike, right, uh, and, and everybody there, and I knew most of the people there. And so, and as a Canadian, I was incredibly proud, right, of what we had built. But um, it got to a point where uh, it was the it was early 2012 where Jim and Mike handed um, the reins to a new CEO um, who was one of my colleagues uh, to to that point, and we just disagreed on wh- what needed to happen at the company at that particular point in time. And I think that to me was like a moment where uh, where I just said, okay, like if I'm not aligned to where we're going and what we're trying to do. Uh, I think it's probably time for a change. Um, and ironically, like, you know, and this, the world works in mysterious ways. Um, I got a call from John McFarlane, the founder of Sonos at that time. And we had Sonos in our house in England. And Bob, I must have sold, you know, dozens and dozens of other people on Sonos to that point. And when I, when I had set it up in our house in England, I had, I had said to myself, wow, that was so easy. And it reminds me so much of the magic of BlackBerry in the early days. And so 
um, you know, so, so John had reached out and even when I was at BlackBerry, Steve Jobs through an executive recruiter, like they had their own executive recruiting team had reached out and said, want to talk to you about iPhone sales, whatever. And I said, no, I said, no, I'm, you know, loyal to BlackBerry and to RIM and, you know, this company and those kind of things. So I wouldn't talk, but, you know, and part of it was probably being naive and just having grown up inside the company, but I wouldn't talk to people. And John, you know, but John called, John was, it was different with John because I also just wanted to talk to a founder who had built something special that I used and loved and was selling to other people. So I agreed to talk to John and um, we were on vacation um, in France. Uh, I was with my family and I said, okay, I, this is going to be, you know, an hour that ended up being two hours. The next day we we flew back to London that night. And the next day I spent another two, three hours uh, talking to John and we were just so aligned on what, because he had a company prior that had really, you know, wrote, risen and done some amazing things and then didn't have a good end. And, you know, I obviously at BlackBerry, we were having challenging times. And I think he and I were both so aligned on building a company for the long term and not, you know, cutting the corners, not doing the kind of things that we had seen sometimes that, um, you know, I think uh, it was kind of the downfall, right? And, and some of those things. And so I was just... Uh, I was super interested um, in terms of the conversation. And it was happening right at the time that I was having a disagreement on strategy with the new CEO at RIM. Okay, what was the pitch? Was the pitch come in at this level and you have a potential of being CEO? That's exactly it, Bob. It was, you know, come come in, you know, join the team now um, and, uh, you know, be, be my right-hand person and have a chance. I, you know, John was very clear of, I don't see myself as CEO forever um, in this. And so, you know, come and join the the group. And we sat, we sat together in the same office, you know, for the first, what was that, like probably two, three years. Then we actually moved offices. But um, so we sat in the same office and spent so much time together going through it and just, you know, really debating, um, trying to figure out, you know, where to go, how to maneuver uh, everything going on in the industry and how to build a company the right way and putting the effort into culture and effort into the people and the recruiting and some of those things, which, um, yeah, I learned so much from John and I think he learned so much from, he's just a sponge from other people and other founders, but as well from what he went through in um, software.com and everything they did the first time around um, that we had a really, really tight relationship and a really shared view of trying to build something that would outlast both of us. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how did the decision to make the handoff transpire? And when it transpired, did John disconnect or did he continue to give input? Does he still give input these days? So this is this is the incredible thing, you know. Um, so John's wife Patty, um, you know, came down with cancer, um, and so he obviously was, you know, that that was a big focus for him. And she's fine um, today. She's battled that, um, thankfully. And so that was, you know, distracting a little bit. But I'll tell you, the number one thing was. Um, that I had seen and I had rung the bell around voice and said, John, like this voice thing, there's something to this and we need to be on top of voice and be figuring out, you know, vo- how voice interacts with our speakers and what the strategy is here. And John was like, nope, not going to happen, not going to happen. And, you know, so eventually I had the conversation with him of like, now, you know, now you're, you're kind of like some of the people at RIM of like that had said, no, no, the iPhone isn't going to be a big threat, right? You know, and, and some of that. And I said, like, you know, we need to be thinking about how this plays out. And so to John, that was one of the most important things. To John, one of the most important things uh, that anybody could have is a sense of where things are going and what the future looks like. And do you see that? And he said, you see it better than I do. And so I think now is the time um, to hand the reins to you. And Bob, this is the most incredible thing and the most important thing and probably the most unique thing is that I said to John, stay, stay on the board. You know, you own a big chunk of the company, stay on the board, um, you know, and, and want you to be part of it. Cause I think it will be a shock to the organization for you to just step away. And he said, Patrick, he said, if I'm going to hand the reins to you, I'm going to hand the reins to you. I've seen this go badly so many times and there's going to be things that you want to change that I will disagree with. And like, it'll just be bad for both of us uh, in going through this. 
And John literally stepped away, Bob. Like he just, he left one day. And if anybody would contact him, he'd say, talk to Patrick. And at the same time, you know, today, you know, more than four years later, like four and a half years later, if I called him right now because I needed something, I needed his advice or help or something like that, he would answer like that. Um, and he would be willing to help me. Um, and I mean, it is just having talked to a lot of people that have gone through these kind of transitions, it was the most incredible gift that, um, you know, he could give me to set really me, but all of Sonos up for success because we didn't need to change some things and we did need to move on certain things and do things differently. And he was so right because, you know, um, we made the transition in January and at the February board meeting, there were a bunch of things I was doing that I know would have been a huge debate between John and I. Uh, and so uh, he was absolutely right. And I can't, you know, I can't thank him enough for like making that decision and making the transition the right way. You know, the perception was that Sonos was behind on voice and it might be the death of the company that you were late to market. How did you catch up there? Yeah. So um, this was, you know, from my rim experience, like one of the things, again, that I don't think that I think too many companies do is respond in some way. So there was a faction of people that would say, we need to go do our own voice system. We need to make our own Alexa, Google Assistant. I said, no, like that is not, yeah, Amazon has 10,000 people working on Alexa. We are a, at that point, 1,200, 1,300 person company. Like this is not going to work. And so, you know, so I said, we need to co-opt what these companies are doing. And they have a strategy around why they're doing these things. Let's go talk to Amazon. Let's go talk to Google. And we can just like with streaming services, we can be Switzerland in this and we can offer all of the voice services that are out there. There'll be more, you know, it's not going to be one that's going to satisfy everybody. So how do we go and do that? And kudos to our product team that very quickly came up with a way to basically retrofit and figure out how to put voice and microphones in a Sonos Play one, right? Which we rebranded as one and got out very quickly. So that Bob was like a 12 to 16 month development cycle, which was our fastest on record. Nobody thought was possible. Um, our team did an incredible job to do that. It meant a lot of hard engineering work, both on our side and Amazon's to actually make it work. But it wasn't, you know, I think it's really important that we looked at it in a way of partnering with these companies as opposed to building our own and trying to, you know, outdo Amazon or Google um, at something like that. And so that was that was the strategy. It's kind of taking the momentum of those services and bringing them into the Sonos ecosystem. Okay, perception from the outside was that you were essentially the first licensee. When you approach these two companies, Amazon and Google, were they willing to license their technology or what was their perception and status? Yeah, thankfully, we, um, Dave Limp at Amazon, absolutely fantastic in terms of thinking about this and his, his respect for Sonos. And I think Bob at Google too, like so many of the people that were involved and the executives all had and loved Sonos and saw the fit. And so I think we were in a unique position. We'd been working with these companies before on music services, you know, cloud, um, a variety of different things. And so we had good relationships with um, the companies and they, it, it, you know, my, my impression was their goal was to get their voice services out in as many products as possible, as many places as pro possible. And, and that was right. Like that's what they wanted to do. And so um, we just gave them a path to be able to do that. And having, you know, some of the most important and affluent homes out there, um, it seemed like a golden opportunity. And so uh, it worked. Okay, let's talk about the lawsuits. 
Tell me the thinking and play out what happened. So, um, you know, we, we obviously have 19 years at this point of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears that people have poured into um, building the experience that you see today on Sonos, inventing a uh, whole bunch of things that we've patented. And, and again, that's a, that's a lesson John and I both had equally learned from our first go-round, right? So at RIM, you, I'm not sure if you'll remember, but there was a massive lawsuit where uh, basically 23 lawyers in Chicago ha- had a patent and sued RIM, basically tried to shut RIM down um, and it did shake us down for $612 million um, when, you know, that, that was a lot of money for us um, at that particular point in time because we hadn't patented and hadn't like kind of ticked and tied things. And so I never wanted to be in like that position, even from a defensive side of it. And so early on, you know, John had made the decision to start patenting and I was a huge advocate of that. So we were patenting all of the inventions that we had because we knew this was going to be a big category someday and we would get giants jumping into it. And so, um, you know, and so one of the things that uh, transpired was, you know, we tried with Google to be able to say, hey, look, like you are, you are copying what we do. Like you can see it, you can see it in the experience, the marketing, all of these things. It's, we put our patents out there, Bob. That was the other thing that we did. It was around the same time Tesla did. I think we were like a maybe two or three months ahead is just putting our patents out on our website saying, here's where they are. You know, innovation is fine, but don't copy um, what we're doing. And so we're just making people aware. And so it got to a point with Google where I didn't feel like they were taking it seriously that they were infringing on our intellectual property. And so um, we decided that we needed to take the next step, which um, I think, uh, which, you know, we're actually now close. It's been a, it was what, January of last year, uh, August 13th, we'll actually hear from the ITC on this, um, is are they infringing, you know, the patents that um, we had there and did they, you know, copy what we invented? Uh, and I felt it was important. I felt it was important for all of the people at Sonos that have put um, all that work into the products and inventing these things. I thought it was important for standing up for smaller companies, you know, in the face of what has been called efficient infringement, where these big tech companies just copy what smaller companies do and drive them out of business. Um, And we were in the position where we could afford to do it from a, you know, we had the dollars because we'd gone public and, you know, we had a strong intellectual property, you know, portfolio. And so I felt a duty in that way to our people, but as well to this notion that you've got to stand up to these big tech players and, um, you know, you're not, you can't let them trample all over the inventions that you've made. And so, um, you know, we're full steam ahead on that. Um, I testified at Congress as well, uh, around the antitrust and dominant platforms, uh, as well, because like I was saying, I've been in this, the whole technology space for 23 years. And I remember the days of, you know, Microsoft and Intel and the dominance that they had. Uh, Microsoft and Qualcomm actually created a company called Wireless Knowledge to basically destroy RIM. And, um, but it was very different at that point. Like, you know, it wasn't something where they were willing to undercut price and, you know, sell, you know, give things away, right. To, to basically uh, undermine other companies and those kind of things. And so um, it was important to me to testify at Congress and share our experience with the dominant platforms and the way that they're, um, you know, using their muscle, if you will, because I think it's important for the country and for the future of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship that, uh, we make sure that there's not a situation where there's, you know, it's too much power in too few hands. Okay. How much does it cost to sue Google? 
Um, should be available in our public records, but it's, yeah, it's tens of millions of dollars. Okay. Let's just say hypothetically you lose and they can continue to do it their way. Would that affect the future of Sonos? No. Um, the other thing I would say is one, one uh, just like on a, a more technical note, you know, we've, uh, you can only sue on five patents. We have 105 that they are uh, violating. So um, there's a lot more to go in this uh, battle until, you know, where we are, we're confident about where we are. But also the other thing, Bob, is that it wasn't, and this was very important to me, is that it's a very small group of people that are involved in this matter. So it takes a certain amount of my time, and I try to be disciplined about that. Eddie, our chief general counsel, obviously him and a few of our intellectual property people very focused on it, and then outside firms. That's why we pay the money uh, in terms of going through it. But I also said to the company, we cannot let this take away from us continuing to drive innovation and bring at least two new products out every year and drive the business and get into more homes. And so we've successfully been able to do both. Um, and so I, I am not by no means like uh, would I rely on that as the only way forward for Sonos. Like we have to continue to compete and win. Um, and we've shown we can do that too. Okay. Let's talk about the big software issue where it came out and it appeared to customers that you were not going to support old products with new software. And then ultimately to the point where, like, I have a lot of stuff on uh, Sonos 1, but for the Roam, I have to download Sonos 2. Yep. So walk us through all that. Yeah. So after, by that point, 16 years of shipping products um, and then looking at what we wanted to deliver for the new products uh, as well, we came to basically a point where we couldn't support the processor and memory and the limitations that we had on those early products, three early products um, that were, was required to do things like Dolby Atmos music, Dolby Atmos, um, and some of the other things that we have planned and coming that we we um, that we're using with Arc and New Five, New Sub, uh, and now as well Rome, and so it was hard, and we had lots of you know. We spent so much time trying to figure out the right way to work through these kind of things. And we thought we did the right thing in trying to get out in front of it. We flubbed the messaging in a, in a big, big way. Um, but we're trying to alert people of like, hey, this is coming and give people a chance to get their system to S2 if that was the right thing. Um, so that was tough. We, you know, um, it was a communications issue. It was a, it's a technology issue and what a technology life cycle issue you would say that we have to walk people through. And thankfully um, a lot of our customers, you know, continue to stick with us through that, but we certainly flubbed the communications up front where we said, okay, like it, we almost gave the impression. I got a lot of emails, um, people, my emails on our customer support site. So people can email me directly. And I got a lot of emails from people who thought that meant their products were stopping, you know, in May of last year. Um, when we communicated it in the end of January, which was not the case and never you know, planned to be the case. So, yeah, so it's um, it's really about trying to, how you balance. I guess I would say from a, you know, from a company perspective, it's how do you make sure you are inventing the future and doing everything you need to do to create great new experiences in the future, but not, you know, not stranding the customers that have invested in the technology um, of the past. And, I, and look, I mean, the reality is there's not many companies like ours where the products from 15 years ago still work. So I don't think a lot of companies get ca caught up in these kind of situations. Um, but it's something that 
um, you know, is important to us to make sure we're continuing to service those customers. And so, yeah, so there's some customers, it's not that many at this point, but there are some customers that'll run in like an S, the, the first version software and then the second version software. Um, but most customers have been moving to S2, the new software. Okay. And, you know, this came up because unlike a phone, people buy home audio or TV stuff, they expect it to last. It's not a fungible item that you discard. So how long do you uh, plan to support these legacy products? Um, you know, as long as we can. And the only thing that trips us up is if something gets changed, um, you know, if a service, for instance, isn't going to support or is going to change something in the architecture, um, you know, those kind of things. So we're continuing to support it. Um, I don't see any reason why we can't uh, continue to going forward. So, uh, yeah, we'll support it as long as we can. And is there any trade-in, trade-up program for? There is, yeah. So there is um, there is a trade-in program, 30% off uh, for customers that want to move to S2 products. Okay. So how long are you going to do this? Do what? Run Sonos. Oh, <laughs> uh, as long as they'll let me. I, I absolutely, this, we have the best team in the world. Uh, it is so much fun uh, in terms of the company. Uh, I think we have so much opportunity in front of us. We have some amazing products on the roadmap. Um, I just feel extremely blessed um, to have the opportunity to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, as long as you know, as long as I feel like I'm contributing and leading in the right way too, and we're heading in the right direction, um, then, you know, I'm, I'm in. So you have a good record as a seer. Where's it all going? Hmm. Where, yeah, it depends where it is if we're talking about. Okay. Let's, uh, so let, let me break it down. First, in terms of Sonos, these are essentially home audio products also aligned with TV. Do you ever envision Sonos broadening their landscape in terms of their purview, their products? Absolutely, Bob. I, I think the I think the system we've built and the, the connectivity to the cloud and the systems that are there, uh, the ideas we have around future products, the opportunity in all of audio, um, it, there's just so much opportunity out there. I, I do see us broadening. Uh, absolutely over time. And I've said, uh, I think we have an opportunity to play in all the different areas of audio. So there's no reason we can't um, over the long term. The most important thing to me is doing it in a way that brings something unique to the table, right? So something like Rome, how is that different than other Bluetooth speakers? We've got things like SoundSwap. Um, there's a different way that we've integrated the voice services, those kind of things, and that it's kind of connected together, right? And so each product you're getting with Sonos makes the experience better. And this is something we watch pretty carefully is like, our, is that true? So as people get more and more products, how do they feel about the system? And they feel they get even, they become even bigger advocates over time. And so I think we have a lot of opportunity um, right across the whole audio spectrum over time. And who, who knows where it goes from there? Okay. Um, to me, to me, the biggest thing is, are we building a company, you know, and a team that's adaptable, uh, you know, and building something that fundamentally is going to be enduring over the long term. Let's talk about the Rome. When what, the Rome is a very small unit, and you set it up and turned on, you were literally shocked by the quality of the audio. And most portable stuff is adequate at best. Okay. What was the thinking in developing and also, but the price, a lot of the reviews will say the price is significant, if, you know, and therefore how hard a sell is it? Is this a portable item? Is there people buying on sound quality or are they just buying on price point? They, 
you know, for us, anytime we're going to do something, it has to have that different experience. So it is different in the sound, um, the build quality, uh, the functionality as well that we have. And it's hard to make it sound that good in that form factor. But, um, you know, Giles, Chris, and the team do an incredible job at doing that. And I hope that every product we have, as people turn it on and listen to it, um, they'll be surprised by the sound that comes out of it, um, whether it's Arc or whether it's Rome. Uh, so there was a lot of debate too, Bob. You may remember, you know, Bluetooth was uh, a sacred cow at Sonos for a long time. Long time, and so putting Bluetooth in a product and being able to do that and still live up to our quality standards was a big deal. Um, so we worked through that and figured out how, how we could do it and how we could do it better, um, which we're proud of. And I don't get too caught up, like from a price perspective, it's very, it's a very good deal for what you get. And we feel good about that. And there's some people that'll want, you know, that $29 product um, from Google or Amazon, and maybe that's sufficient for what they need. But um, as you probably can tell from how long it takes to get one these days, um, there's a lot of people that are um, very, very happy um, with Rome. And it, it kind of arrived, you know, we did do some, you know, last year at this time, we did do a little bit of tuning of our roadmap and moving things around. And so Rome was one of those things that we tried to accelerate. Um, and I think it's arrived at a really good time as the world starts to reopen. Okay. Let's talk about audio. Used to buy a stereo. Now people buy television audio. Okay. And audio is ubiquitous. In general, where is the audio landscape going? Do you mean from a format perspective or how do you think I, about I, it? I mean everything. You know, if we look at streaming services, the story today is lossless and then even Dolby Atmos. And then there's another issue. The highest standard of uh, Amazon and Apple services won't play on Sonos. Right, right. Go on. So, so I think we, we start with the customer and what do they, what do they value, right? We've not been that company that tries to put every logo or new standard on the box, if you will. Um, you see companies like that and you see their boxes with just like the gobbledygook of every logo and every new standard. And so, you know, sometimes we've been accused of being a little slow on that front and looking at it, but we're thoughtful about what's happening in each space. And so even going back with soundbars, you know, where, Dolby was really the precursor to Atmos was really taking off from streaming services. And we said, that's where we're going to focus as opposed to delivering uh, DTS, right? Because DTS was very much about the old school Blu-rays, right? That would have that technology. And so um, we try to stay focused on what the customers are doing. We, we obviously support Dolby Atmos with our ARC product. And there's a lot of people that would tell you that the best way to listen to Dolby Atmos uh, out loud with one product would be ARC. Um, so, uh, we're watching, you know, carefully, uh, pretty interested around what's happening with Dolby Atmos music, you know, with lossless, the, the reality is from what we've seen is that a lot of customers just can't tell the difference or don't, you know, aren't that into it in terms of what's there. And so the real question with Dolby Atmos music will be, is it what people want at the end of the day? And is it filling some need that they, they are feeling they're missing today? I definitely see it and enjoy it. Uh, when we're watching, um, you know, watching streaming Netflix or videos or w whatever the case may be. And there's a real place for that. And I think the, you know, I think we're starting to see it. It certainly seems like the industry is getting behind Dolby Atmos music in a way that is going to make it um, the next standard. But uh, at this point, a lot of it's the industry talking to itself. And I want to see what consumers do. Okay. So 
depending on how you call it, they call them the FANG stocks or the big five. You know, we have Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, etc. You intersect with these companies. A, do you ultimately believe since you went to Washington, there will be effective government relations or in also uh, government uh, changes here? And do you also believe that the sphere is more abundant or can an interloper come up in triumph? Uh, the So I do believe that the government is going to take action. I think it's the probably the only bipartisan issue we see right now uh, that's out there and both sides for, for different reasons are seeing the, what the results are of, you know, having too much power in too few hands fundamentally. And so I do expect you'll see more Lena Khan being, you know, chairperson of the FTC is a big move. And, you know, I think that it's a whole new era, uh, Tim Wu at the white house. So you're getting people that have been talking and writing about these things for a long time into positions of power to actually affect change. And I think it'll be good for society, quite frankly. And there's a lot of people that talk about the fact that even maybe some of these companies spinning out certain businesses may actually be better for everybody involved, right? And it may foster more innovation. There's always the danger of like regulatory capture and um, situations where uh, the rules are put in favor of the incumbents, right? And they can actually solidify their position. So we have, just have to make, make sure that, you know, that doesn't come to pass. But um, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing uh, fundamentally on that front. And then also on the flip side, Bob, you know, like we're continuing to innovate, we're continuing to do everything that we can, right? And that, you know, as I said, that's super critical to us being successful in the future. Um, certainly, I hope that there'll be other companies that challenge the ones that are out there today. Uh, I think, you know, again, it, it's it's a short period of time in the grand scheme of things, but I've been in technology for 23 years. I will tell you the dominant position and the way that the companies that are there today act and how quickly they move to jump into any new potential threat is uh, unprecedented, right? So last year, you know, Google basically doing everything they could to jump in front of Zoom, right, with the video solutions. Or another great example we saw last year, you know, Google Photos went from being free to starting to charge after they'd driven all the photo products that you had to pay for out of the market, right? And so they went and did that. And those are those are things that um, we didn't see as much in the past. And so th those kind of things I worry about in terms of driving, you know, the up and comers uh, out of the market that so there's something there. But I also, you know, fundamentally believe that there will be some sort of change in the system. Is it AI? Is it blockchain? Is it you know something we don't even see today? That also helps, hopefully, you know, another company or a new set of companies uh, emerge. Well, Patrick, I think we've covered it. We've come to the end of the feeling we've known. I think we have a great overview of Sonos and its place in the market. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Bob. I've enjoyed it. Till next time, this is Bob Lefset. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.